first gospel that appears in the New Testament, but not the first gospel that was written. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, I'm going to read to verse 25. It says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is God's Word. Let me just pray. Father God, I thank You for Your Word. Every single word You have put in the Scriptures, Lord, has been put there for our edification and for our encouragement to build our faith, to change us, Father, from the inside out. And so I pray, especially for a Scripture that perhaps is very familiar to us, that You will make something new. You are the Creator. You can create new things. So I pray that that You will show us something fresh and new, something we don't expect, and that You will remind us of something that's very old, which is the cross of Jesus. Thank You, Lord, for Your Word and its power to change us. pray You'll give us conviction for those of us who need conviction and comfort for those of us who need comfort. It is in the name of Jesus, our King, we pray. Amen. So, outside the Christmas season, which is what we are in, uh, I have found, and maybe you would agree, that it's relatively uncommon for us to talk much about the Christmas story. I don't mean the movie, the Christmas story, which is fantastic. I mean the story of Jesus' birth. We don't often talk about that. I mean, during this season, during December and the Christmas holiday Churches usually have all their special services. We're going to have, obviously, one of our own. We have their Advent calendars that we go through. Some of the schools, whether they be private or not, but certainly the private ones have their own little Christmas plays that you'll probably be going to. The preschool put on their little Christmas skits that all the kids are singing. And A few families have the wonderful privilege of having those 1965 plastic nativity glow, Jesus, baby things that gets, I would get one, but I know it would get stolen if I set it up because they're awesome. But some people, right, you don't see that during March. You don't see that in, in June. You see it during December where people begin and talk often about the story of Jesus. And then you have a few really awesome parents, and I mean really cool parents who force their children to perform the Christmas play as ransom for any presents they might get. Oh yeah, you know we do that. And if you don't, it's an opportunity for you parents to use some leverage to get some really good video. And my kids will be doing that again. But in truth, I mean, for the most part, we're relatively silent for about 11 months of the year about Christmas stories. And then when December finally comes around and we're going through this Christmas story in the Bible and we're talking about the birth of Christ and singing away in the manger and, and all these songs that are very familiar to us but very unfamiliar the rest of the year. Right? We don't sing away in the manger in June. Silent night, I don't see that very often during spring. It seems like for 11 months a year we're, we're pretty silent. And then when this time comes around and sermons like this, as I said, come, I am tempted to believe that we'll ignore the details of the story because it's so familiar. Or maybe miss the details of the story because it's so familiar. And you think, really, we're going to talk about the birth of Jesus? Of course, it's Christmas. After years 
of nativity sermons we're not expecting. I don't know if you're expecting much today. If you looked ahead, you went, birth of Jesus. Okay, what's there to know? He's in a manger, stable, animals around, the whole thing, right? Wise men, all that. But see, like Matthew, I am not interested this morning in just telling you the story. I am very much like Matthew intends to do with his story, and the way he tells it is to preach the Gospel. The Gospel is preached in a very unique way in this story. And so we'll see if we can maybe turn it upside down a little bit for you, look at it differently this morning. As I shared last week, Matthew, I believe, titles his Gospel, this really long title, if you kind of interpret all the words, as this, the new beginning of God, saving the world through Jesus, the promised Jewish King who will bless all the families of the earth. That's what I believe the title of Matthew is. And so after setting the stage in the beginning of his Gospel, as we talked about last week, with this kind of sordid family history of the King, this dirty family history, this shocking family history, and including prostitutes who become Jesus' grandmothers. Matthew immediately, right, at the, immediately turns to the beginning of this new beginning. And the beginning of this new beginning is the birth of Jesus. And the birth of Jesus is just as scandalous. And like the first Genesis, though, right, if you're familiar with the story of Genesis, the first chapter of Genesis, if this is, as Matthew says, the new beginning, the beginning of the new Genesis, the recreation of all things. We see this recreation begins in what is, again, a darkened world, just like in the beginning of Genesis. And who shows up? The Holy Spirit. Again, you've got to look at what's God doing here. Read Genesis, and I'll read you at least one verse. In the beginning, this is from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Heard that before. The earth was out form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So what do you have in this situation? Again, a very dark time. A time when they have been waiting for the king for over 400 years, and God has been silent. You've got a Jewish, quote, king reigning, who eventually, we'll see in the next couple weeks, is going to start to kill two-year-old children, so he can try and destroy the Messiah. It's a dark time. And what we see in Matthew is the Holy Spirit showing up again to start this new Genesis, this new recreation. Literally, the birth of Jesus, again, is that same word, the Genesis of Jesus. And so, the Genesis of Jesus within Mary, right? that, that birth creation of of this life in Mary is an act of the Holy Spirit. It's an act of God whereby He enters into darkness and He creates something out of nothing. Same thing. And the Holy Spirit's presence in this moment teaches us a lot. These little truths that come just from this idea of the Holy Spirit. We could go crazy with all kinds of, honestly, sermons about the Holy Spirit, but I just want some real basic things that we learn. First, we see that the Holy Spirit is the one who actually creates physical life. He is the one that initiates physical life. Mary is a teenage virgin. And without going into great explanation about what it means to have not known a man in the biblical sense, just know that because she hasn't known a man in a biblical sense, pregnancy is Impossible. I imagine we could have some creative ways that that might happen, but if we just go simple, plain, it's impossible. And so what we see here is, first of all, that new life is never accidental. It is never, ever accidental, and new life is never, ever purely biological. Don't make into this world of this like, you know, it's, it's, well, just physically this is what happens. No, there's much more at work there. Ask people who haven't been able to have children. 
So God is the author of new life. And what we see in this case is that nothing is impossible for God. Nothing. The second thing we see is not only physical life, you see the Holy Spirit, I believe, is the one who brings new spiritual life. Right? Mary is not just carrying some kid. He is, she's carrying the Savior of the world. Jesus is the only one, the Bible said, who reveals the true person of God. And the Holy Spirit is the only one that reveals Jesus to a person. Doesn't matter how much knowledge you have or explanation or persuasion you might have from different ways to argue why Jesus is who He says He is. In truth, the Holy Spirit is the only one that convinces you that the foolish story of Jesus is true. The Holy Spirit is the only one that convinces someone that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. As one theologian wrote, Every conversion is like every conversion is like a virgin birth. And what I mean is that it's unplanned, it's unexpected, and it's unavoidable if God moves. Spiritual birth has absolutely nothing to do with human initiative. Nothing. Just like a virgin birth. It wasn't like Mary's like, you know, God, this would be good if I can have a kid at this point. That was Mary's last thought, right? But God comes in and does something amazing. And the last thing we learn is that the Holy Spirit, this is, this is, this is going to fry your noodle, right? Okay, your Holy Spirit, right, not only creates new life, which in itself is stinking amazing, spiritual life, right, it takes that guy that wanted nothing to do with Jesus, hates Jesus, hates the church, hates the Bible, loves his sin, and one day goes, I believe. You go, what? what? Amazing. But here's another one. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings God's plan to fruition through sinners. Contrary to what the Catholics might want to believe, Mary is a sinner. Mary is sinful, rebellious, broken, she may not be the Adolf Hitler of sinners, but she's a sinner. Okay? God could have made His Son appear in a shaft of light, right? Baby in a basket. Mary could be sitting there just like knitting and something like, whoa, like, whoa, baby! Right? Wouldn't it be just as effective? And I'm not even going into all this theology of why. Just think about that. God could have went, baby. But He didn't do that. He didn't do that. Because God doesn't often work in shafts of light and those kind of things. Yes, we see often He does, but it's not normative. We see that God doesn't use humans because, guess what? They're the most efficient way to save the world. That's not why. He chose to unfold His plans through sinful men and sinful teenage moms to magnify His glory, His greatness, His power, His control, Him saying, I am running this whole show. Hold on to your hats and watch what I do. Woo! This is the first verse! I told you. As you keep going, you see that Mary was not the only one involved in this miracle, right? And this is actually where I want to center it. She was betrothed to a man named Joseph. I guarantee you, you never talk about Joseph except on Christmas services, Sundays, watching, nativity type of things. Never. Joseph doesn't come into mind. The name Joseph means really nothing incredibly intriguing. It means to add to increase or to do again, right? Not as amazing as a name like Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, like God saves. Put the Father and Son together, though, right? Put Jesus and Joseph together. What do you get? God saves again. Ooh, that's cool. Yeah, I made that one up. But, I mean, it's cool. It's not like you put them next to each other like, oh, like, wow, that's, that's what's going on, right? Isn't that the re-beginning, the new beginning? God's saving again. 
doing it again through this guy named Joseph, this obscure guy named Joseph. Joseph is one of actually the most common names in the Bible. It's cited uh, over 250 times, but ironically, beyond the birth story, you hear nothing about Joseph. You hear nothing about it. You hear a lot about Mary. Mary kind of pops up here and there, telling Jesus to make a bunch of wine at the wedding. He's, she's at the cross where he's dying, and he yells out to John, this is your mother, and mother, this is your son. So Mary's like throughout the Gospels, but Joseph's gone. Never hear for him, from him. Occasionally, once or twice, someone mentions, isn't this the son of Joseph? But Joseph himself... Most likely he died before Jesus was crucified. Now, you may have heard of a Joseph before. The first Joseph in the Bible, right? The namesake, they're always named after people. The first Joseph was the 11th son of Jacob. Jacob is the guy whose name was changed to Israel. And from Israel, Jacob, came 12 sons or 12 tribes. And the 11th son was Joseph. He was the favored kid. And we go, why was he the favored kid? Well, he was the favored kid because he was the son of Jacob's first love, Rachel. Loved Rachel, so he loved Joseph. And Joseph, as you may know from Donny Osmond or something else, right, he was a dreamer with a cool coat that his dad gave him. And he was a dreamer. What that meant was he wasn't like going around, oh, I'm dreaming. It's more like God gave him dreams, right? Gave him visions of things. Well, he was also a loudmouth. And so he decided to share, not really thinking, his dreams with his brothers, especially one dream where he's like, hey, guys, I had a dream. Really? Tell us, Joseph, Mr. You know, Dad loves you more than us with the cool coat. He says, tell us about your dream. He's like, well, here's what it was. You guys all came and were worshiping me. Not real smart, right? And so his brothers, already not liking him, were not amused, and they decided to sell him into slavery. They fake his death, and he ends up in Egypt. You may know the story. He had a really horrible time in Egypt. It began with him just serving, and because God really had just his hand of favor on him, everywhere he was at and worked, wherever home he was in, they were favored. And then he was falsely accused of rape. Then he was thrown in prison, only to be eventually released because of his ability to interpret dreams by God and became the second in command in Egypt. So he goes from, you know, nothing to in charge. This is the original first Joseph. Now eventually he's reconciled with his brothers, and you can read pretty much the last third of Genesis is about the story. And his brothers end up coming to him because there's a famine in Egypt, and they don't recognize him, but Joseph does, and they eventually are reconciled, and everything's fine. But eventually, Jacob dies. Dad dies. And when Dad dies, because they've all come to live in Egypt, his brothers start freaking out. Because like, the only reason Joseph hasn't like, basically done us in is because Dad's been alive. And now that Dad's dead, we are done. So they start getting scared. And Joseph hears about it, and he actually weeps. Because they only don't think his forgiveness was genuine. And it was. And this is what Joseph wrote about his horrible life, right? This is the situation. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father... Um, he gave this command before he died. Right, they're making this up. Like, here's what Dad said before he died, Joe. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And his brothers also came and they fell down before him. 
dream fulfilled, right? And said, Behold, we are your servants. Verse 19, But Joseph said to him, Do not fear. Am I in the place of God? As for you, here it is. Now, as you consider yourself when you read, when you hear this, remember this is Joseph, the guy who suffered perspective. Because we always like to want to look at suffering and, and have an opinion for them. This is Joseph's view of his whole experience. And he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. It's like all the evil you did to me, God meant it for good. It was horrible. I hated it, but God meant it for good. And look of the blessing that's happened. Now, you ever have one of those weeks? You know what I'm talking about? One of those weeks where everything seems to just be horrible. And I know some of you have had that week recently. Whether it's your kids acting like demons, or it's your house falling apart, or it's your cars, or it's your job, or it's family that's just giving you nasty emails, and you're like, what is going on? I know it's one of those things. Well, for your horrible week, Joseph had a horrible life, okay? It wasn't just a week, it was a life. And he looked at that, and he saw this. All of the things that the enemy wants to use to destroy you, all of the arrows that he throws at you, all of the attacks that he can do creatively and, and little ones and big ones and the, the minor irritations and the huge devastations, all those things, guess what? Know that the devil is just a tool. It's just a tool. He comes to God and says, yeah, I want to do this. And God's like, go ahead. Because God, the God whom we serve, the one true God, takes all of that stuff that the enemy intends for evil and goes, easy, good. It's incredible. And so as we think about the original Joseph and all the evil, I've wondered if Joseph felt the same situation. He is in an evil situation, one that he didn't cause, one that he didn't create. And by evil, I mean the entire world in that time, that culture would look at that and go, oh my goodness. According to Luke chapter 1, verse 26 to 38, after a visitation from an angel to Mary to explain why she had morning sickness, right? She's like, like, well, let me tell you why, right? You got a baby in you. She's like, what? That's not possible. She didn't say that, but she probably thought that. What did she do? She didn't run to Joseph. She immediately went to Elizabeth's house, her cousin. Why? I got to talk to my sister. Right, I got to talk to the girls. This is serious. So she goes. Elizabeth is the mom of John the Baptist, and she shows up. She's already six months pregnant, and John the Baptist like senses Jesus, like whoa, and she's like he's like doing cartwheels in his in her belly, right? And Mary's like, what's going on? Elizabeth's like, you've got like God's son in your belly. Oh my goodness, right? And they're just like, great. She spends three months there. Three months Mary spends with her. So she's not with Joseph. She's away from Joseph for three months. And then, when she returns, how does Joseph and the community find out? She's got a three-month baby bump. That's Joseph like, hey, how's Elizabeth? Oh, my what? That's what he saw. That's what the community saw. I mean, she may have wore some big dress or something to cover it up, but something was different than they all knew. And you can imagine, it wasn't, again, Mary going, hey, this happened. It was like, here I am. It's interesting that Luke, who also wrote of the birth story, the birth story doesn't exist in Mark and it doesn't exist in John. It's in Luke and Matthew. And in Luke, Joseph and all of this decision-making and what to do in the divorce isn't there. It's not there. There's more about Joseph and Matthew than anywhere else. 
The only information we get from Luke's gospel is that he was betrothed to Mary. That's it. And then he took her to Bethlehem from Nazareth, his hometown. That's all we get. There's no discussion about what Joseph felt. There's no discussion about what Joseph was thinking about doing. There's no mention of what changed Joseph's mind. But in Matthew, there is. Matthew, I believe, wants us to see Joseph, a man who is largely invisible in the Bible. He wants us for a moment to see this guy, Joseph. Joseph and Mary were betrothed, which you may be familiar. In Luke, he's actually called her husband. Now, betrothal is like engagement, but in this culture... Betrothal was as binding as a marriage. And so therefore you would use that kind of marriage language like husband. And a betrothal could only be dissolved through actually a divorce. So it wasn't just like, hey, engagement's off, here's your ring. It was a document. It was a formal proceeding. You had to actually have legally your marriage, which wasn't actually fully a marriage yet, your engagement dissolved. Now, there are very few legal reasons a man could divorce his betrothed. One was sexual immorality. Mary and Joseph were engaged, but they, as every betrothed couple, they were not to come together in the biblical sense until after the covenant ceremony. But they were bound to each other. And if pregnancy or Adultery, which would have been considered adultery, was discovered. That was grounds for divorce. And so Mary's pregnancy would have, without question, been embarrassing for Mary, but it would have been humiliating for Joseph. We can probably imagine, or I've tried to imagine their conversation, as, I mean, think about that as Mary's trying to explain. She shows up, you know, Hi. What happened? Well, this angel came and saw us. What's his name, right? No, I mean a real angel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. I mean, you think for a second that Joseph just went, oh, Mary, okay. Clearly he didn't. He didn't believe her. We have to, would I? It had never happened like that before. And you, you just kind of look at the situation, right? When you consider all the ways God could have brought His Son into the world. He could have even brought into it a married couple that maybe just got married. He decides to bring His Son into the lives of this engaged couple, it has to be the most scandalous, like backwards, I would never do it this way, way you could do it. I think God wants us to learn something from Joseph. The Bible, as I said, doesn't explicitly say that Joseph was upset, but I think we can infer that he was probably devastated, probably angry, And as I said, I don't think he believed Mary. Legally, Joseph could divorce Mary, and socially he should. But one thing Joseph was not was reactive. So the Bible says that he considered these things. He took them seriously. He thought about them. And he thought long and hard about what to do. And the Bible describes him as a just man, meaning he loved God's law. He knew the law. He knew what was right, and he respected that. And Joseph knew it was evil to just overlook something. This wasn't just an accusation someone made. This was, there is a baby there, and it did not come from me. So he couldn't just overlook it and go, well, it's no big deal. That would be an affront to God's law. But he also knew that it was even more evil to proclaim such a thing publicly. And so Joseph proves that he not only loved God, but he loved Mary. 
and it says he resolved to put her away quietly. He had the authority and the right to do it publicly. He had the authority and the right to have her stoned. Unlikely that would happen. More than likely, though, it would be, this is why I'm divorcing. Check it out. But he decides to put it away quietly, which would have involved basically two people, because he had to have two witnesses, and that was it. And it nest, outside of them, it never had to be made public. But the truth is, Nazareth, it ain't no Seattle. Pretty small town. We all know how small towns work. You weren't going to be hiding this from anyone. His decision to privately write up a certificate of divorce without announcing a reason was his decision to take shame upon himself the rest of his life. That's even if that's if he divorced. This is the picture I think of an incredibly loving man. So Joseph went to sleep, if you think about the story, most likely intending to divorce Mary in the morning. Maybe thinking about the two friends that he could trust the most to not share what had happened, but knowing that it would get out. And as he sleeps, an angel appears to him in a dream saying, don't be fearful to take her as your wife and explains what has happened. And the angel confirms what Mary said. He says, she's telling you the truth. He is told that his child, or who his child will be, yeah, he's going to be God. That's what he's told. Like, whoa. He's told what this child's name is supposed to be, Jesus. What he's going to do, God saves. And he's told, specifically, saving from what? People from their sins. When Joseph wakes up, he doesn't doubt what he's experienced. He doesn't go and counsel with friends. He doesn't sit and ponder for a few more days as to what that really meant. He marries Mary. And he becomes Jesus' adoptive father. Without hesitation. So think about the things he sacrificed, right? He sacrifices his rights because he has all the legal rights in the world to do what he had planned to do. He sacrifices his comfort without doubt, and he sacrifices his lifelong reputation for Jesus. So think about what Joseph did. He sacrificed, laid down his liberty, laid down his legal right, laid down his freedom for Jesus, laid down what would have been comfortable, laid down what would have been perhaps much easier for Jesus, laid down his reputation for the rest of his life for Jesus. He takes the blame for Mary. He doesn't push her off her distance. He actually takes the blame. He endures the shame. He loses his name completely so that Jesus can have one. And we know that actually it's implied a little bit, and John, I'm maybe using some liberty here, that the story uh, surrounding Jesus' birth and, and what actually happened was a legend that no one fully understood, but it was out there. In the Gospel of John, as Jesus is speaking to some Jews, He says, I speak of what I have seen with my Father, and you do what you have heard from your Father. And they answered him, Abraham's our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works of Abra that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And this is what they said to him. But well, we were not born of sexual morality. We have one father, even God. Now, he may simply be they may say, like, look, we are from the line purely from Abraham, or they could be throwing a little jab at Jesus. We know where our dad is. So that was there. Which means if it was there for Jesus, most likely Joseph is dead, it was there for Joseph. He chose to live with that. 
Now I want you to think for a second out of all of the people God could have chosen to be Jesus' adopted father. We know very little about Joseph, but he chose this young man from an undesirable little town called Nazareth whom many people said nothing good ever comes out of there. And God didn't just choose him to be Jesus' guardian. Just guard my son while he does what he's doing. Don't get in his way. He cho- Think about this. He chose Joseph to be his father. To be his father on earth. And as the father of 4.75 kids, because she's not quite here yet. She'll be here soon, right? Four, five kids. I know that my actions and my attitudes, especially as they relate to my wife, will impact my children. They will shape my children. Perhaps even more than what I directly teach them. How I love, how I serve, how I give, how I forgive, how I show grace, how I take responsibility, how I confess sin, that's all going to shape my children. More than any other sermon I might give on a Sunday morning or in my home. What they see me do. What they know I've done. See, Joseph was a quiet man. Joseph was a just man. Joseph was a loving man. Joseph was an obedient man. And Joseph was an unknown man. The only thing Joseph is known for is for being a godly, loving husband and father. That's it. There are no extra accomplishments. There's no list of Joseph's achievements. There's not even a picture of anything he built. Right? All we know about Joseph is how he loved Mary. And we know how he loved Jesus by the kind of person Jesus was. And I, oh, come on, theologically. I do believe Joseph had an impact on Jesus. Now, men in particular, but it applies to parents. Men in particular, without doubt, I believe your children and your grandchildren need to know how to love a bride and need to know how to love Jesus. But let me give you one little secret that Joseph shows us, I think. What they really need to learn and to know is how Jesus loved his bride. And they learn that by how you love yours. Not what you say, but how you love your bride. What I mean is that parenting and marriage is gospel work. That's gospel work. That is preaching sermons. You are preaching truth or lies about our Lord. How Joseph treats his bride is incredible. And I believe that all that he did for Mary was known to Jesus. I think Joseph and Mary probably told him the full story of what happened. And I am certain that Jesus didn't go, mm-hmm, sure, Mom. Right? He knew. And he saw this fleshly, rebellious, sinful, broken man love his mom in a horrible situation that he didn't create. And I believe it helped shape his personality. Like father, like son. And just as Jesus is the perfect image of our Heavenly Father, I believe He is also in some way an image of His earthly father. I'm not trying to lift up Joseph. What I'm trying to do is to see how Jesus saw and learned and became who he was in a way that's amazing. Because how Joseph loved his mom did more than just shape Jesus. It actually shaped the gospel. Let me prove it to you. Joseph not only loves like Jesus, I think Joseph not only loves, that's what I want to say, yeah, Loves Jesus, but Joseph, I'm sorry, Jesus actually loves like Joseph. 
He's a better Joseph to a worse bride. Joseph, think about this, saved his bride from the appearance of sin. It wasn't sinful, but there was an appearance of sin. Jesus actually saves his people from their sins. And so you see this shaping of the gospel through the image of Joseph. So like Joseph, Joseph goes beyond justice to mercy for his bride. What do I mean? Although Mary did not really commit adultery, we have. We have through our idolatry. There is none who is good. All have gone astray. All worship things that are not God's. And though God has created the world, and though God has sustained the world, and though God has blessed the world, the world refuses to acknowledge Him. With regard to sin, we are certainly not virgins. We have slept around, and God uses that language constantly with false God, and as a result, given birth to all kinds of sin and destruction, and we try to blame everything outside of ourselves, even God, which is exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden. And I think it's amazing that Jesus' half-brother James uses very, quote, pregnant knowledge to talk, or words to talk about our sin. Check it out. He says in James chapter 1, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God, not, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. We have, without doubt, rebelled against a one true God. We refuse to obey God because we wrongly believe we're going to find happiness apart from God. Legally, legally, we are guilty. We legally, Jesus has the right to put us away. Legally, Jesus has the right to divorce us. Legally, Jesus has the right to stone us. But like Joseph, like Joseph, Jesus goes beyond justice to mercy. And he lays down his right by laying down his life for his bride. Second thing, as we close up here, like Joseph, Jesus loves us and he takes shame that he's not responsible for. This is awesome. Apart from Joseph, no one would have wanted to marry Mary. No one would have wanted her as a bride. Joseph chooses to take responsibility for Mary's sin when he didn't have to. He could have walked away and Few, if anyone, would have blamed him. Even if they had their angel stories, no one's going to believe them. And this is a people who haven't seen God for 400 years, and then suddenly an angel shows up and works through this scandalous way? No way. But in obedience to his heavenly Father, having learned from his earthly Father, Jesus takes the shame for his bride when he didn't have to. Jesus didn't work to put me quietly away for fear of being associated with me. He pressed in. He embraced me. He identified with me. He said, you know what, see this dirty guy over here? He's mine. This shameful, unwanted person? Mine. He not only removes my guilt, but he stands up shamelessly to claim me as his. When I marry young couples, I often say this. This is out of some of the sermons I've done for those couples. Although God sees both of you as individuals, He sees your new family represented in you, husband, whoever the husband is. Your bride's issues become your issues, and even if you didn't cause them. This is because the Bible says that in marriage, the husband is the head of the home, not he ought to be. How you lead is going to govern the nature of your home. Know this, as we see in Joseph, we see in Jesus, that when no one else wanted you, when no one else wanted me, when no one else said, that's lovable, I, I would like to be with that, 
when everyone in the entire world said, look, that is not worth loving. That is unwanted. Jesus stands and says, you're my beloved. I know your brokenness, whether it's the appearance or the real thing. And the difference with us, it's the real thing. Mary didn't make a mistake, and we've made plenty. Jesus isn't just standing to like, whoa, 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 let me guard you for what you think. He's like, no, everyone knows that you are sinful. Everyone knows you are broken. And Jesus says, I'm not only going to forgive you, I'm going to love you and claim you as my own. And the last thing that is so incredible, and again, it's modeled in Joseph, but it's seen in Jesus fully. Jesus adopts me as son, so I'll live and love like him. What I mean is, Joseph's decision to take Mary wasn't just one decision that would never have any consequences. It was not just a commitment to this one-time event. It was a commitment to live and love Mary and Jesus, his adopted son, till death. Jesus is the better Joseph. Having chosen mercy, having chosen to identify with my shame, Jesus chooses to dwell with me. He chooses to live with me. It's not like, yeah, I, I claim you as my own. Good luck. Forgiven? Hey, have a nice life. He comes and He dwells by the power of the Spirit with me. He continues to love me every moment, walks with me every moment. What does the Great Commission say? I will be with you always. Having chosen mercy and chosen to identify with my shame, He dwells with me not just till death parts us, but actually beyond death, into eternity. And I love the verse out of Romans which says, For I am sure that neither heights nor depth nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Always His. Forever His. Forever His child. Forever loved by Him. Forever forgiven. Forever approved. Forever Him saying, that's my boy. That's my girl. Jesus is the better Joseph and until you identify yourself with Mary, I would love to be Joseph. But I suck at being Joseph. I need a Joseph. And so what we have to do is identify actually with Mary, the one no one wanted, but the one that God chose to love. And if you don't get to that place, you'll be looking for love in all the wrong places. God has given us His Spirit not only so that we might know love, so that we can love like Him. It is not enough for you to know love if you are not loving. The mark of His disciples, Jesus says, is love for half one another. And then He calls us to go love your enemies and love the world. We've got to love in the same way Joseph loved, however imperfectly, but was exemplified perfectly in Jesus. What is that? Loving graciously, especially when it's undeserved. When it's undeserved, when you're like, you know what? You hurt me. You embarrassed me. We press through justice to mercy. We press through claiming our rights. I don't have to love you. I didn't make this situation. Jesus can say the same things, and yet He chooses to love. And so we choose to love those who find themselves in brokenness or those who put themselves in brokenness. Because that's how Jesus loved us. And we love when it's hard. Because if loving wasn't hard, everyone would do it. But guess what? Joseph choosing to love Mary was difficult. It was difficult. It was choosing when it was most difficult. And lastly, it's loving long term. I was told by somebody who goes to our church, and I can't remember who it was, but they were talking about the difference in relationships for, for European and American. They said the difference is in European relationships, they often are lifelong relationships. In America, like once the person's not with us, like they're not our friend anymore. Once we kind of lose, you know, that locus of, of 
influence where they're not living next to us or we don't talk to them all the time, like, you're not really a friend, I guess. And it's not because you don't want to be a friend, it's just like they've got to be in front of you. Well, Jesus loves us long-term, to the end, forever, and I am praying and hoping for a beautiful church whereby we know each other, we love each other long-term. I was sharing with this in my road group, and this is the last thing I say, I promise, and that is this. I was reminded that so many people have been born in the world, right? And you could have lived in so many other places. And because we have been brought together in a church, we have a unique relationship. For those who are in Christ, if you're a Christian, and we know each other, you know me, we are going to love each other for eternity. That means that there's a lot of other Christians in this world, a lot of other Christians in this city. I'm not in church with them. But I am with you. And you're with me. And when we get into heaven, we'll be like, Woo! Because I love you and you love me. But that needs to start now. And I don't preach that because, like, we're not loving. It's just like, no, I just want to show you the richness of of a long-term relationship, not short-term, of going deep with one another like Joseph made the commitment with loving Mary and Jesus. It wasn't just a one-time decision. It wasn't like, you know, I'm going to love you until it gets difficult. I'm going to love you until, like, you know, everyone starts talking, you know, about the story. Because once that happens, I'm out of here. He said, I'm going to love you long term. I'm going to love you when it's hard. I'm going to love you when it's difficult. I'm going to love you when it's ugly. I'm going to love you. That's the family of God. We're going to take communion. And as we do, we are reminded of those things. Not of um, Joseph and his imperfect love, but the perfect love, both modeled in Joseph, but came to life in Jesus. A love that said, you know what, you're unwanted, and when we take the cup and we take the bread, we're declaring the truth and reality that Jesus said, I'll take him, I'll take her, and I'm going to love you though you're dirty, I'm going to love you though you don't deserve it, and I'm going to do everything for you, take your shame, take your guilt, and then give you life and that abundantly, because you're my kid, forever. We take communion a little bit differently, we've got cups, we'll play two songs, and we encourage you to come up, get a glass to uh, serve your family. If you're a parent, a husband, and you're with other children or other people, we'd ask you to, to get enough stuff, basically, for elements for your family. We'll sing two songs, and we'll take communion together as a family, reminding ourselves that we are only able to love one another because of the love Jesus Christ has for us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the example of an obscure nobody from the city of Nazareth who, Father, made a commitment 